It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere we go. Right? I tried just saying it to start, but every time I said it, it sounded stupid because I just was talking super sing-songy and I couldn't do it. So we got the song. It is though, isn't it? It is looking a lot like Christmas. And as we anticipate our celebration of the day when God came near, what are we busy doing? Lots of things. We're baking, we're shopping, we're writing lists and checking them twice. We're watching Hallmark movies. There's nothing wrong with that. We're hanging lights, perhaps. We also might be bringing cameras and relatives to church to watch small ones play bells or sing songs or say a line or muster up enough courage to just stand there in front of the congregation. A good story takes us on a journey. It reminds us of where we've been and shows us where we could go. A good story makes us feel and inspires us to act. Welcome to the Good Story Podcast, where everyday stories that make you laugh, cry, or feel slightly uncomfortable will leave you inspired as Kirsten King tells true stories and teaches truth. I remember the excitement I felt as a kid when our Christmas parts were handed out after Sunday school in early December. I always hoped to get the part of Mary, but I never did. That part always went to someone with dark hair. Oh, well. I also didn't get to be a wise man either. Well, because wise man, right? The boys also got the parts of the shepherds, too. Once I was cast as an angel, though, and was able to glory to God in the highest with the best of them, well, dressed in my white sheet and tinsel halo, Usually, though, when it was time to divvy out the Christmas parts, we didn't get acting parts. We just got a portion of the script. Our teacher had a stack of papers that she would cut apart in order to hand us each just our portion of the program. They had numbers on them, so we would know how to line up. And as I'd see her start to hand out these slips of paper, I knew it was just a matter of time before I get to memorize some sort of a rhyming line, like... The angels sang, Jesus was born. We celebrate on Christmas morn. I get so excited. After Sunday school, I'd clutch my narrow strip of paper to run and show it to my parents as though it was like the original angel's proclamation, which I am certain was not written on small pieces of paper. Can you imagine? All right. <clears throat> Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. Oh, don't, don't, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of me. Okay, angels, angels, guys, no, other way around. You're bearing the lead. Gabriel, you're supposed to be first. Remember that. You're first with a do not be afraid line. Come on. Imagine those shepherds. They're going to be freaking out. No, no, no. <laughs> they didn't have on little strips of paper. But we, we reenact and we need it on little strips. <laughs> Because this was such a significant part of my life growing up, I loved this Christmas program. I was super excited to see what would happen when it was our kids' turn to participate in their Christmas programs. The very first year we had kids, our boys were, I don't know, like months, some months old. I always hated that when people would say, how old are your kids? And they'd be like, four months and seven days. And I'm like, they're not one. I don't know. They're, they're working toward it, though, and we've had them around here for a while. So they were some months old. They were born in April, and then it was December. Do the math if you're that person and you want to figure it out. At any rate, the first year we had our kids, our twins were Jesus. Now, not because of labor laws, like 
why they needed two actors, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, to play the part of Michelle in Full House. Or for listeners in my era, they needed the twins, Lindsay and Sidney Greenbush, to play Carrie on Little House on the Prairie. No, not for those reasons. Our twins were both cast as Jesus for one reason alone. Whoever would best be able to act out the asleep on the hay and no crying did make when the curtain went up, he was going to be the guy we would wrap in swaddling clothes and lay him in the manger. (laughs) A few years later, our twins graduated to the Away in the Manger group. You know the one. Seems like there's always a group of small kids singing Away in the Manger in every church Christmas program (laughs) everywhere. I started doing some research on this carol just out of curiosity this past week. I was wondering if it always was meant to be a little kid song or not. I ended up going down a rabbit hole for hours. All afternoon, honestly. Apparently, Away in the Manger has been a sort of source of confusion or consternation, even mild conflict through the ages. Who knew, right? Hashtag Away in the Manger Gate. (laughs) But here's the thing. They couldn't figure out who wrote it. Who authored, especially verses one and two, who authored these? For years, people attributed the authorship to Martin Luther. And then, years later, people decided that that likely wasn't the case. In fact, scholars concluded that it was very likely not the case. Finally, it was determined that the first two verses of Away in the Manger would have to remain unattached to any specific author. The third verse, however, was accredited to a man named John Thomas McFarland, but not just like, oh, John Thomas McFarland wrote the third verse. It's, well, he wrote it because so-and-so asked him to, and then John went back to his apartment in Fifth Avenue in New York and penned it and came back and gave it to him. And then someone was like, no, uh uh-uh, because when you said that, it was this year. And three years earlier, this church was singing the third verse, so that couldn't have been when and where he wrote it. And people argued. And we could never figure it out, but they all agreed it was probably John Thomas McFarland who wrote it. Here's the thing. I started wondering, does it even matter who wrote the verses since there really wasn't even a consensus on the words? Here's the deal. Every line in the carol, every single line in the first two verses has discrepancies. I won't go through them all, but for examples, right? Line one, verse one, line one. The earliest sources said, no crib for his bed. Later on, you find out it's no crib for a bed. Line two, earliest sources say, lay down his sweet bed. Nope, nobody said that. (laughs) The earliest sources say, lay down his sweet head. (laughs) Other sources say, laid down his sweet head. That's, you can just hear how that could get, you know, confused. Are you saying lay down or are you going lay down? Maybe just connecting the words because you had some like, um, I don't know what we had. We always had our, um, what do you call it? Oh my goodness, our conductor, our choral conductor always tells us, string the words together. So it's lay down his sweet head. So there you go. Cause for confusion. Line two also, it was like, it's not sweet head though. It's we head. Line three, is it the stars looking down? Is it they look at? Is it the stars in the heaven? In the heavens? Is it the stars in the bright sky? Line four. Is he asleep in the hay? Which later was changed to on the hay. I think that's a good change. That's fair. He's asleep in the hay. Where's baby Jesus? He's asleep in the hay. 
No, on the hay probably is a little bit more accurate. So that's verse one. Verse two, same thing. I'm not going to go through all of them in verse two, but it's, is it the poor baby wakes or is it the baby awakes? Line four has tons of discrepancies. Stay by my cradle. Stay by my crib to watch. Watch o'er my bed while slumber I lie. Stay by my side until morning is nigh. Watch by me always and ever be nigh. Stay by my cradle to watch lullaby. It's all these things. These are all different variations. Who knew? And is he taking us to heaven to live with us there? Or is he fitting us for heaven? The answer to all of these questions is yes. Yes, all of those things, because all of those words were found in lots of different places. The greatest controversy, though, was the phrase, no crying he makes. People were concerned. Why are you saying that? What's the ulterior motive? No crying he makes? What, was he not fully human? And scholars and, and theologians argued that. Is this like a little tiny shout out to docetism? Are they saying, oh no, Jesus is not fully human? Is that why he's not really crying? Someone's like, no, he's just peaceful. They argued about that quite a bit. Today, in many modern hymnals, you can usually find two renditions of Away in a Manger. Both renditions will say that verses one and two are of unknown source, and verse three is by McFarland. And if you're singing this song, you could be singing the first tune by James R. Murray. That's the one that's away in a manger, no crib for a bed. There you go. Now I just kind of tip my hand to the version I sing. But if you're singing the second tune, away in a manger, no crib for a bed. That one, that one was by William J. Kirkpatrick. And apparently everyone was like, let's just put them both in the hymnals. Did you ever have any idea there was this much history around away in the manger? I had no idea. None of these facts mattered to my kids when they graduated into the, we are singing away in the manger in the Christmas program group. <laughs> in fact, the whole song didn't even matter that much. I mean, it did, but mostly what mattered to my boys was the hay in the manger, where Jesus, who this year was a doll, had been placed. They pulled hay out of the manger. They tossed it about while they sang. They did this and then they ran across the platform doing the actions while the rest of the class stood lined up like soldiers doing theirs. And everybody laughed and they just did it more. And everybody laughed because that's what you do when someone else's kids do something out of the ordinary. I experienced that firsthand that year and in many subsequent years that followed. One year, our daughter Greta was in the two-year-old class. This class didn't sing Away in a Manger. That went to another class. They got that song. This class sang a different song called Shh, Shh. That's what it was called. And this is how that song went. Shh, Shh. See the baby Jesus. Shh, Shh. Sleeping on the hay. Shh, Shh. See the baby Jesus. Shh, Shh. Born on Christmas Day. Here's the problem with that song. You're singing, shh, shh, and rightly so, because the baby is sleeping. But you're not singing it to the baby. You're singing it to a church full of moms and dads and aunts and uncles and great-grandparents who are sitting in the back row who can hardly hear what's going on. And so while the words are, shh, shh, 
The teacher says, sing loudly so everyone can hear you. This conundrum did not sit well with Greta. She decided that was most what would be most important to her was going to be Jesus. Now, bear with me here for a minute. She decided that at least that singing the song with a shh, shh was of most importance. I don't think that she stood around and said, guys, I really want to focus a little bit more of my attention on Jesus. What with all the tinsel and all the lights and all? Guys, let's focus on the reason for the season. It wasn't anything like that. She just liked the shh sh and thought, this is most important. Let's sing it quietly. And so we watched the song unfold. We watched her singing, shh, shh, see the baby Jesus. And we watched her watch the boy singing next to her. This boy wanted his grandparents to hear. This boy wanted to please the teacher who was singing, saying, sing louder, sing louder. So he was singing at the top of his lungs, shh, shh, see the baby Jesus. And this offended Greta. She was appalled. She decided this needed to stop. And so by the time they got to the third time through the song, she glanced at this boy to her right. She fully extended her right arm, cast him a glare like, how could you? Then she crossed her right arm over her body to the left side, and then with all of the force she could muster, she swung her right arm and whacked him right in the stomach, never missing a beat, as she continued to lull baby Jesus asleep with her, shh, shh, see the baby Jesus. And again, laughter. The laughter that comes when someone else's kids do something out of the ordinary. I would like to laugh at someone else's kids someday. Maybe it will be this year. As, as I think about these Christmas moments, I want to ask the following questions. First, who's the author of Christmas? And secondly, how do I focus on Jesus and on the need for others to hear? So first, who is the author of Christmas? Of God coming to earth? of God becoming flesh, taking on flesh and walking the sod that he created? Is the author God in his love? Or is the author me in my need? Without God's love, would it even be possible for him to take on flesh and make himself a man? Without my need, would Jesus need to do it even? What does God's word tell us? God's word says in John 3, 16, many of us know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes on him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. God's love sent Jesus. It's God's love that is the author of Christmas. In Philippians 2, it says this, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. That's Christmas. It goes on to talk about Easter. It goes on to talk about Good Friday and then Easter. But this portion tells us about Christmas. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in what? Being made in human likeness. 
in human likeness. This is a selfless kind of love. This is a love that comes to serve. We see Jesus, some people will talk about Jesus as though for some reason he's he's subordinate to God and has to do whatever God says. No, well, he was on earth, he was. He did do whatever God said. But Jesus is God. <laughs> and God's love compelled Jesus as God to come. And then his greatness is seen in his sacrifice. When he doesn't consider equality with God the thing to hold on to, but he chooses to empty himself and make himself nothing. Hebrews talks about this as well. Hebrews talks about focusing on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is God's idea. Christmas is God's idea. He has written this story. God is the author of Christmas. It is his love that authored Christmas. Our need highlights that love. His gift highlights his glory. Secondly, I want to ask the question, so do I focus on Jesus or on those who need to hear? Simple. We focus on God's love. And by doing so, we'll focus on both. As we focus on God's love, as we focus on his selfless, demonstrated Christmas love, where he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and made himself like a human, in fully human, fully God, as we focus on this demonstrated Christmas love, as we focus on him and understand what he's done for us, we will respond by wanting to share that good news with others. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God shows us his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we see when we focus on God's love? We see that God himself showed us his love when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it, when we couldn't expect it, when we couldn't have invented it. His love was given to us while we were still sinning. This love was selfless. This love was giving. It brought Jesus down from heaven, confined him in the body of a human, placed him into time and space history when he himself was time and is history. God's love, this love compelled him to come while we needed him most. 1 John 4, 16 says this, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Believe the love? What is this love? This selfless giving love. God is love, it goes on and says, and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in them. We are to know his love. Truly know it. Experientially know it. Like I know how much I love an ice craft depressa caribou. I don't know it because I read the ingredients list or I've heard from others how amazing it is. I know it because I drink it in. Know God's love like that. Don't know his love just because you've read about it or you've heard from others how amazing it is. Drink in God's love. Allow his love to penetrate your heart and to reach to the very innermost parts of your being. Know his love, 1 John 4, 16. Believe his love. Don't doubt it. God's love doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And he is dependable. Sometimes we don't feel lovable. 
but feelings aren't facts. What's the fact? What's the truth? Again, let me repeat. God's love doesn't depend on you. God's love depends on Him, and He is dependable. Finally, according to verse John 4, 16, we are not only to just know His love and believe His love, but we are to live in God's love, which sounds delightful, and it is. We live knowing that God loves us. And then we respond, like it says in 1 John 3, 18, not just in words and tongue, but in actions and in truth. The verse says this exactly. Dear children, let us not love in words and tongue, but in actions and in truth. What might this entail? We want to make sure that everyone can hear that God loves them and wants to live in relationship with them. So as we focus on Jesus, see the baby Jesus sleeping on the hay, as we focus on this Jesus, we also simultaneously want to shout from the rooftops or go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere. Go tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is born. And as we tell with our words and tell with our lives that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, we are following his example. God tells us with his words that he loves us. He shows us his love in the person of Jesus. Let's look for ways to model his love to a world that so desperately needs to see the powerful, personal love of God seen at Christmas. Christmas.